Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Today, we wrap up the first trimester awards podcast with Jordan Christmas and Jordan Schultz, starting with Coach of the Year. All right, let's move on to Coach of the Year. And number one, I think, is pretty clear for all three of us. Yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The Boston Celtics lost arguably their best player. I don't know. I think it's more of a toss-up between Hayward and Kyrie than people might think, just because Hayward is really underrated on the defensive end. But regardless, they lost an all-star player five minutes into the season, and they're 22-5. and They have the best record and the best defense in basketball. I mean, Jordan's already said this, but Brad Stevens is a wizard. I don't really think there's any other way of putting it. This team should not buy any logical stretch of the imagination be 22 and five right now. And yet here they are. It's really incredible. Uh, Like you said, they lost their best player. I thought Gordon Hayward was their best player going into the season. And it was really just a damper on what was supposed to be the excitement at the start of the regular season. And I really thought the Celtics were going to be a sixth seed at best, a seventh seed after losing Gordon Hayward. I did not expect Jason Tatum to shoot 1,000% from three-point range, Jalen Brown to take the leap that he has taken, Al Horford's finally averaging close to uh, nine rebounds. He was a subpar rebounder, in my opinion, in Boston um, last year, and but he has been... He's been incredible, a a great passer, great spacer, screen setter. Just Brad Stevens has just been able to, on the fly, with four returning players from last season, just craft a really great defense. And the offense, I think, is going to come around. I don't think it's going to be middling of the league for much longer, just because there's moving parts everywhere. But the fact that he's just getting production and semi Ojale, I mean, Daniel Tice coming off of the bit. I mean, who would have thought just these players that he has collected before the season started and they're ha- they're a cohesive unit on uh, one side of the court already and not only just a cohesive unit, an elite unit. It's just incredible. Brad Stevens is, it's like the Ben Simmons rookie of the year race. There is one and then there is a distant, distant second. Yeah, the thing I've been most impressed with is what you said, the the fact that he's getting everything out of every guy on the roster, you know, even Terry Rozier, all the all the jokes that went around about him, like even he is looking like a, a quality NBA Untradeable. player. <laughs> Untradeable, that's right. Um, but it's, yeah, like I said, he's a wizard. That's, I don't think I can say it much better than that. That's, that's pretty much all I got on Brad Stevens. He's clear-cut coach of the year. And another wizard who has made something out of very close to nothing, honestly, Greg Popovich has the San Antonio Spurs at 18 and 8, and Kawhi Leonard has yet to step on the court this season. And I thought last year that the Spurs were going to be in trouble in the playoffs because they had one star player, literally one star player in Kawhi Leonard. And of course, I had forgotten about the most important star in San Antonio, namely their coach. And Every year, people say, this is the year the Spurs fall off. This is the year the Spurs fall off. They lost Tim Duncan. Tony Parker might retire after his injury. Tony Parker came back pretty early in the season, actually, despite that injury. Manu Ginobili's 40. 
LaMarcus Aldridge has fallen short of expectations and Kawhi Leonard's not playing. And every single year, the Spurs are a regular season juggernaut and a threat in the playoffs. And honestly, Greg Popovich could win coach of the year every year, and I wouldn't be all that upset by it. And the only reason he's number two is because Brad Stevens has been just so spectacular. But Greg Popovich has got this team at 18 and eight with zero all-stars from last season. And especially given the star talent in the rest of the Western Conference, that's just mind-boggling to me. The greatest coach of all time. I don't think I'm, you know, in the minority or whatever, trying to give out a hot take here when I say that he is the greatest coach of all time. And year in and year out, he is able to get the most out of out of whatever he has on his roster guys like brent forbes brandon paul um rudy gay coming off of an achilles injury a 37 year old pau gasol uh he is able to him and lamarcus aldridge uh had a powwow over the summer and lamarcus aldridge is starting to put up numbers similar to portland we'll see how that changed when Kawhi leonard gets back who by the way has not played a single game yet this season greg popovich just continues to amaze me not only is he an incredible human being and one of the smartest people whenever he gives thoughtful interviews and not one answer words in the pointless in between quarter interviews on tv he is a thoughtful person and not only that he hit he's the best coach in history i mean dejounte murray started part of the year they started off four and oh then they went on a skid and then Patty Mills went into the starting lineup. And he's just been he's just been shifting his lineups around and they're 18 and 8 right now, which is third in the Western Conference and <laughs> he's he's without a top 5 player in the league. It, I if if it, like you said if it wasn't for Brad Stevens just being a wizard, Greg Popovich might be the OG wizard, but <laughs> Brad Stevens has just been that incredible this year. But Pop is could win it every year. Pop's incredible. Yeah, I really went back and forth with my number two and three. So for the record, I came in with Pop at number three, um, and and it was tough. It wasn't necessarily a slide on him as much as I think that people are kind of just forgetting about the fact that you know Steve Kerr ho hum has the Warriors again at twenty one and six, and it just seems kind of kind of uh, wrong to knock him down off of that. Just you know, because not necessarily the storyline, because it is amazing what Popovich has done, but Steve Kerr again has the Warriors locked in. Um, you keep thinking at some point you might see a Cleveland type lapse and like kind of focus where they start to kind of you know start off on a little bit of a slid and then get back into it but they, they just don't with the Warriors that they're ready to play every single night and I just think that you have to applaud Kerr for that so that is why I have him in there at my number two but it, it mainly came down just to the Warriors are sitting at 21 wins right now and the Spurs are a couple games behind them but I can definitely see um, 100% why you guys have Popovich at number two. The reason I didn't have Steve Kerr on my list is because I think the Warriors are 21 and 6 despite not really caring all that much about the regular season. They really don't care. <laughs> there are games where they're down sometimes even double digits at halftime and then the third quarter comes around and they're like, "All right, I guess we have to start trying now." And they put up 47 to 15 quarters against teams and just blow the doors off people as soon as the halftime buzzer sounds because the Warriors are so good. And granted, this was before Steph Curry went down and we've seen the Warriors barely crack a hundred points in their last two games without Curry on the floor. But there are games where the Warriors just sleepwalk through the first half and decide to actually try in the second half. And 
all of a sudden they get it together and get back on track. And granted, some of the credit should go to Steve Kerr for that, for, you know, actually getting them to try it during those second halves. But it just amazes me that the Warriors can decide that really only the last 24 minutes of the game matter and continue to beat teams in that fashion every night. Yeah, that uh, t- that forty-seven to fifteen quarter you mentioned that happened to the Sixers. Thanks for uh, <laughs> sending that subliminal shot out there. <laughs> I, it, yeah, the, uh, that's one of the reasons actually why I had Curry off of my MVP list, uh, off of my top five at least, and why I had Draymond third in Defensive Player of the Year is just because I mean, yeah, the Warriors don't care. We know they're the best team in basketball, and when the playoffs happen, they're going to start to care. But it is a regular season award, and you have to be docked for that. See, and I guess for me, it's just, like you said, there have been halves where it seems like they don't even, like, turn it on until the second half. And even still with that, Curse found a way to, you know, to press those buttons and to lead them to 21-6. and six. Um, So I, I don't know. It's just got to be applauded in my book. So two other coaches that were third for JC and myself, who we haven't talked about yet. Stan Van Gundy has done an incredible job with the Pistons this year after what I thought was honestly a subpar coaching season from him last year, but he's figured out how to get Andre Drummond involved on the offensive end in a way that isn't just posting him up and having him throw flailing hook shots at the rim like prime Dwight Howard. (laughs) He's gotten Andre more involved in the passing game, which has really helped them. I think Avery Bradley has also been a huge and underrated addition for this team. But the Pistons were the story of the early season, and even though they're in a tough stretch now, they've also had a really rough December schedule, and I think that's a large part of why they've lost their last five games. But even without that, I mean, the Pistons had a really tough season last year, and they could have easily folded, and instead we're seeing a great year from them. Yeah, and Andre Drummond can, you know, breathe again <laughs> um he had it he had surgery over the off season to uh fix some uh, get an operation done on his nose and he's able to breathe through both nostrils deviated septum yes and uh he's able to use andre drummond in the high post he's utilized his ability as a passer he's by far eclipsing his uh career averages and assists and tobias harris is just shooting the lights out from three and avery bradley has like you said has been an incredible addition they are just Stan Van Gundy's finally, well, Reggie Jackson is also healthy too. I'm, I know he had a down year last year, but he had some knee issues throughout the season. But Stan Van Gundy's a good one. My third on my list has been uh, Quinn Snyder. And the reason why is uh, the fact that the Jazz are 500 right now and um, they are a seven, they're the seventh seed in the Western Conference. That's kind of where I had them to start the year anyway, just because I think Snyder's a good coach. But, I mean, I thought Rudy Gobert, when he went down with that knee injury uh, against Miami, I thought they were going to really fall off. But um, they actually went on a six-game win streak, and their offensive rating jumped through the roof. During the time Gobert was out from November 11th to uh, from to last week, December 4th, the Jazz had a 100 and have posted a 115 offensive rating and he's been letting Donovan Mitchell make rookie mistakes and giving him all the shots and he's developed into what's going to be honestly I had Mitchell high on my my uh, draft board but I did not expect him to be 
this good already and my ceiling might have adjusted for him my my thoughts on what his ceiling is and just Quinn Snyder's been able to really recover nicely with a hodgepodge of young players to have them at seventh in the west so I had him third in coach of the year all right let's move into three of our favorite storylines from the first third of the season and I wanted to start with Jordan's top three and the number one storyline on Jordan's list, I think, especially in the context of just how crazy the Warriors have been so far this year, is a storyline that will pervade throughout the season and hopefully will go right up until the Western Conference Finals. I hope so. And that, yeah, I mean, shame on all of us, I guess, not even have Mike D'Antoni anywhere near the top three coaches for us, what he's done this year with that Chris Paul. Um, But yeah, it's been absolutely amazing what the Rockets have been able to do. They, you know, keeping up with the Warriors without him. Now they have Chris Paul back. They haven't really missed a beat integrating him back into it. It's the number one story that I'm following right now. It was really hard for me to not call into work tonight because the Rockets are playing in Portland about 40 minutes from me right now. Um, So I almost wasn't here for work or for this podcast here tonight because I was almost on my way to go watch the beard in action. There was a lot of talk during the offseason about how the Rockets might struggle to integrate Chris Paul and James Harden. And I didn't think that would be the case, but the reason why I thought that wouldn't be the case is actually not the reason why it's worked. I thought that Chris Paul would open up another dimension to this Rockets offense because he's one of the best mid-range shooters of all time. And instead, the Rockets have just gone completely in the opposite direction of three-pointers and shots at the rim. And Chris Paul has very willingly, I think more willingly than I expected, slotted right into the secondary playmaker on the team. And he's been running bench units, just absolutely running other teams off the floor when he's running the bench and James Harden is sitting. And... The two of them have been pretty solid in their time together on the floor, and each of them have been absolutely ridiculous when they've been on the floor without the other. I think at one point, Chris Paul was something like plus 40 points per 100 possessions with James Harden on the bench, just because second unit in Chris Paul means Chris Paul and a bunch of three-point shooters, and you can't give anybody any space. Ryan Anderson at one point was shooting 77% on three-point attempts after a pass from Chris Paul. And the defense, I think, has been the most unexpected part of the Rockets' season thus far. But adding guys like P.J. Tucker and Luke Mbamute allow them to basically switch everything. And ultimately, if any team is going to beat the Warriors, it's going to be by getting really hot from outside and being able to switch absolutely everything and lock down the Warriors' star players. And... I can't think of a team that's better designed to do that than the Rockets. And I mean, what they've been able to get out of Clint Capella is amazing too. Um, Like there's some of those fake trades going around on the internet. And I don't even know if I trade Capella straight up for DeAndre Jordan right now at this point. I mean, with the way he's fitting in with what Harden and CP bring there, it's, he is a perfect fit for them. And he's even, you know, not quite as garbage at the free throw line as he was last year too. It seems like a lot of these things, like he still struggles, but it's not quite to the point where it was last year. And they're just killing teams on the defensive end too. I think they're fifth in defensive rating last I checked. And when they have a historic offense and they're playing great defense, I mean, they're, they have just been blowing teams out by 20. They're clearly the, they're the clear and present threat to the Warriors. Jordan mentioned it earlier. The, ca- the, the 
this iteration of the Cavs, even the best version of this Cavs team, even with Isaiah Thomas, I think will not stand a chance against the Warriors unless LeBron averages like a 50-point triple-double. They might have a shot, but the Rockets with CP3 and Harden controlling the D'Antoni system and the all the wings that they have where they could just switch everything. We haven't even seen some of their most versatile lineups yet, but the Rockets are good. They're good, man. And you brought up the Cavaliers, and so I wanted to talk about them quickly. After a 5-7 and seven start that saw the Cavaliers put up the worst defensive numbers of any team in the NBA, once again, the storyline that comes up every single season of, oh no, are the Cavs falling apart? Are they going to be able to make it? And then, of course, LeBron went from maybe 65% LeBron, since he said he wasn't at 60%, like Channing Fry claimed, from 65% LeBron to 80% LeBron, and 80% LeBron is still the best player in the league and is just barely behind James Harden in the MVP race. And all of a sudden, the Cavaliers' defense that was dead last and looked to have no chance of guarding anybody, suddenly they picked it up, and now they're not even close to the worst defense in the league anymore. And their revival has... On the one hand, not been particularly surprising because it seems like the Cavs go through this stretch every year. And honestly, even back in Miami, the LeBron-led Heat had similar issues, but they got it together and credit to them for ripping off that 13-game win streak after a really rough start to the season. Yeah, I think it is at this point safe to say that that Nets pick will be a little bit more value than the Cavs pick. Uh, so Tyron Lue can kind of breathe easy on that one now. But yeah, I think most smart basketball people never really worried about the Cavs. Um, LeBron, he lives in chaos and he thrives in that. You look back at even the years that they won the titles, like there's been all sorts of drama throughout the season. I think um, he kind of gets bored with the regular season, so they kind of almost need that little bit of... Uh, little bit of an extra push to really get going they almost kind of need something to, to get them up and really motivated um but yeah I mean it's it's prime LeBron it's been amazing you've got to see basically a version of playoff LeBron in the regular season after that slow start so I I'm all about it we we have to see a lot from them moving forward um even with Isaiah Thomas I'm skeptical about what they can do just because he really doesn't bring much on the defensive end there so I'm not sure how much of an improvement he really is on that and where they have struggled so badly um so I'm interested to see what they do. Um, obviously, like we'd mentioned, LeBron, if he keeps up with his pace, he may finish as the MVP. Um, but you, if you're the Cavaliers, I can't imagine you want that to be your regular season strategy is to ride LeBron this hard when you, you need him to pull out one of those things. JC was mentioning one of those like 50-point triple-double LeBron performances we're, we're used to seeing in the playoffs. What's really been surprising about the Cavs really quick before we move on, their bench unit has been really good, especially in the, where they've now won 14 of their last 15. They capitalized on the Sixers tonight. But the bench unit that involves Dwayne Wade, Jeff Green, Kyle Korver, and Channing Fry has just usually whenever your star player goes to the bench or your starters go to the bench, you want the bench unit, the second unit, to kind of hold the lead or extended just a little bit but they have just been increasing leads on the regular during this win streak and the spacey and whenever the bench unit is in they're running plays for Corver and Channing Fry to pop open you have the Dwayne Wade post up and Jeff Green cutting off the ball and Jeff Green has actually been a good player in his role this year just hope teams don't get fooled by Jeff Green for the 5,000th time um, but 
their bench has just been really good. And when Isaiah Thomas gets back, I just can't imagine. Well, I can only imagine what the damage they're going to do in the East because I still, at the end of the day, it's still the Warriors and Rockets for me. And Jordan's third storyline from so far this season, the Milwaukee Bucks and their decision to trade for Eric Bledsoe after a middling start to the year. And given just how incredibly talented Giannis is, it would have been easy for the Bucks to just decide, okay, we're going to, you know, push the timeline to next year and maybe then we'll get someone because after all, Giannis is still only 23. But at some point you can say he's only 23 and then next year you'd say he's only 24 and then eventually you end up with a situation like Kevin Garnett in Minnesota, or honestly, what we're kind of seeing from Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins now. But Jordan, what were your thoughts on the Bucks so far this year and the choices they've made? I mean, I love it. It's similar to the reason that I've been so into the Rockets this year is, you know, you think back to the offseason when it was all doom and gloom and have the Warriors ruin the NBA. Like, is it even worth watching anymore? And it seemed like everyone was either like, well, if you're not the Warriors, you might as well just blow it up. But then you have teams like the Rockets who said, you know what, forget that. We're going to go get Chris Paul and we're going to go at these guys. And I love that you see the same thing out of the Bucks. You know, they're not wasting a prime year, to be honest. Um, as a Bulls fan who's seen how quickly a prime can be taken away from an MVP type player, I don't think you can afford to waste those years when you have a guy that is in his prime and is an MVP type candidate, which is what you have in Giannis. Um, so the fact that they went out and got Bledsoe for, I mean, you know, Monroe and some spare parts, which I mean, I guess for them, Monroe kind of was spare parts. Um, good for them. Uh, good for him for not just packing it in and like, you know, hey, Jabari's coming back. Maybe next year, like you said, is the year. No, they went out. They're going out for it. Um, I think they saw that slow start by Cleveland where they did have some holes defensively and they saw, you know what? Hey, we look at our line or our roster right now and we're sitting with Chris Middleton, Giannis. We go get Eric Bledsoe. Uh, we get Jabari Parker back. Maybe then we're on something. Maybe then we can go out and challenge it. All it takes is one, you know, poorly timed ankle sprain for the Cavaliers in the playoffs and then the Bucks are right there ready to take advantage of it. Um, so I love it. I like seeing these teams go after the Warriors and not just fold it in and take it out for the next few years. I think a Jason Kidd ankle sprain might actually help the Bucks playoff chances more than a LeBron ankle sprain. <laughs> oh man. Well, the Bucks, if any, in any case, the Bucks are six and one since the Eric Bledsoe trade just kind of fits their ethos of length at every position also. And also somebody that could carry the offensive load aside from Giannis who was just on an insane torrid usage rate pace to start yeah the only the only downside to the move was it may have slowed Brogdon's development a little bit but from a real basketball perspective I think you really have to like having a guy like Brogdon as a guy that can kind of run things on the second unit from a real basketball perspective that makes him a very very good team um, especially if they can get something out of Thon Maker in the next few years um, it's looking like when the creases we talked about you know in two to three years is the Bucks times um, they're trying to push that timeline up to where they're trying to compete this year and next year, which I'm all about at any time a team can do that and not completely destroy their future. Like it looks like the Thunder may kind of be heading towards if things don't turn around quickly. I don't see that for the Bucks. They're still in a pretty good spot with some of their contracts. All right, Jordan, anything else you want to say before JC and I wrap this up? No. Um, I For the people that have been asking, I'll have a new set of Dynasty Fantasy Basketball ranks coming out on the website here pretty quick. Um, but no, other than that, it's been good talking with you guys. I look forward to hopefully doing this again soon. All right. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks, Jordan. All right. Let's move on to JC and my 
favorite storylines from this season. And I want to start with one of mine that Jordan actually brought up tangentially, which is the Oklahoma City Thunder and their just miserable start to the season. I mean, on the one hand, I'm shocked by it just because of the sheer amount of talent that they have. But I think a lot of people were optimistic that we would see more of an Olympics version of Carmelo Anthony alongside Russell Westbrook and Paul George. And instead, what we've seen is the same old mellow, except less efficient than before because Westbrook and Paul George want similar spots to him on the floor. And then Russell Westbrook having his worst season in a long time. I think Paul George has actually been pretty effective for the Thunder, but ultimately their crunch time success last year that really carried them to 47 wins when their point differential was more like a 42-ish win team. It's been the exact opposite this season. And the difference in clutch stats, I think, has made me question Westbrook's MVP from last year far more than anything related to triple-double stats. So I was actually going to bring the I was actually going to bring this exact topic up with you. Um, so this has definitely I had Westbrook second, so I didn't think him winning MVP was as egregious as some people who maybe don't like Westbrook as much made it out to be. But now I am seeing clearer and clearer why that was the case. There has and Kevin o, guys like Kevin O'Connor who wrote on this stuff have brought up good points. The, the one constant in Oklahoma City throughout the changes, through James Harden getting traded, through Serge Ibaka getting traded, through Kevin Durant, through Scott Brooks getting fired and Billy Donovan being hired, through trading Victor Oladipo and bringing in Paul George, who was arguably a top 10 to 15 player in the league, and Carmelo Anthony, who is still a really good scorer. The one constant has been Westbrook. And I think Westbrook just can't change his style of play, which is not conducive to winning a championship. I don't think Westbrook, and I know this sounds like sports radio hot take, hot takey kind of uh, opinion here, but Westbrook doesn't necessarily make his teammates better. I know he averaged 11 assists or what was it? 10, 11 assists last year as part of his triple double, but he gets his assists through way of guys just collapsing on him and just finding an easy dump off pass. It's not through vision or seeing the defense two steps ahead. And then also he's just really, he's one of the worst three point shooters in NBA history for people who have taken over 1500 attempts from three. He has tunnel vision. He has really bad decision-making and I don't want to pin it all on Westbrook, but whenever Westbrook moves off the ball, he doesn't do anything. He has Zach Lowe actually on his recent podcast gave a shocking stat to me. Westbrook has set zero screens this year, zero, not even like, and not even like an accidental run into somebody while he had, while he's running off ball, he has done nothing off the ball. And the offensive system is just it just isn't creative enough. Yeah, Billy Donovan will draw plays out of the timeout or run some sets, but the offense is generally just ball dominant around around Westbrook. And I just think that it's hard to be a contender that way. The reason it worked with Kevin Durant and Westbrook is because Kevin Durant is one of the greatest scorers ever and he can play with any he's a he's more he can morph to any type of offense 
I just, I just think Westbrook, it, it all centers back to Westbrook. And yes, Mello has been terrible. Mello has been shoot, he's shooting six of 15 from, or he has averaged six field goals, uh, made field goals a game on 15 attempts and has shot 38% from the field and 31% from three the last 10 games. And he has just been putrid on the defensive end as well. And there are other problems outside of Westbrook, but I think the one constant goes back to Westbrook. And I'm really questioning his MVP now more than I did last year. I just wanted to correct you on one thing. Westbrook has set zero screens for Carmelo Anthony this year. He's actually set a grand total of four screens for his teammates all year. Thank you for correcting me because we do like to be correct on this podcast, but that's just, that's still, that's still bad. (laughs) It's still just mind-bogglingly atrocious that someone who's such an effective driver to the rim has set four screens all year when he has two other teammates now who can command a lot of defensive attention. You'd think that Westbrook screening and rolling to the rim could get him a lot of easy baskets, but he just doesn't care about contributing to the offense when he doesn't have the ball in his hands. And yeah, his defense is a bit better this year, but he's, he's always been a bad defender an overrated defender. Like he, he's good when he sets his mind to it in isolation, but off the ball, he just falls asleep or he completely leaves his man so he can go hunt down rebounds. It's just, I have, I love watching Westbrook play as a fan. His explosive plays are fun to watch, but I have just been questioning everything through all the my flip-flopping opinions on Westbrook, all my changing thoughts on him throughout his career. I'm just really I think I've questioned Westbrook more than ever these last few months. Let's move on to one of your storylines and I wanted to start with one that has been more unexpected than the Thunder's poor start to the year, which I did not expect at all. The Eastern Conference has been good. Yeah. And that is honestly really surprising, especially in the context of one of my other storylines from this season related to all the superstar trades. All those guys went west, and yet, well, Kyrie went to an Eastern Conference team, but he also left an Eastern Conference team. The East was a lot worse than the West last year, and they lost a couple of star players. And yet, as of yesterday, the Eastern Conference was 79 and 73 against the West. So one of our writers on hashtag basketball.com, Kevin Nye, released an article today um, about the Eastern Conference. And while, yes, the superstar power might have shifted to the West, the East has a lot of young talent that's on the rise. And honestly, before the season started, I thought it would take like 38 wins to get into the conference. But now it's looking more like, you know, 42 to 45. I mean, the Boston Celtics have all this young talent. The Toronto Raptors, even though they're still led by Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, they have a bunch of young players who are already contributing. OG Ananobi, Yaka Pertle, you can go, the list goes on and on. The Cavaliers, they're more of a veteran-laden team, but as long as LeBron is on that team, they are going to be one of the best teams in the East. Um, the Pacers and the revival of Victor Oladipo, who was considered just a throw-in in a Paul George trade that everybody, including myself, trashed this year. The Pacers are unexpectedly good. And that's including uh, the Bulls and the Hawks in the East, who are just putrid and obviously tanking. The Bulls are 4-20. and Well, now 5-20 and because they won tonight against the Knicks. And the Atlanta Hawks, who are 5-19. and Just There's just a lot of young talent 
in the East, and it's going to be fun to watch over the next few years. And the West, in some ways, is kind of the West. In some ways, is still more interesting, interesting, just because they've underwhelmed a little bit. I mean, we all knew the Rockets, Warriors, and Spurs would be at the top, but I mean, still like the Nuggets, the Blazers, the Jazz, the Pelicans. We all knew they were a lesser tier of team, but they're still like kind of slogging along and figuring it out. But the East has just completely exceeded my expectations this year. And you brought up some of the young talent in the East. So let's go to, or let's go back to rather the young duo leading your Philadelphia 76ers. And we've already talked a lot about how impressive Ben Simmons has been this year And Joel Embiid is still Joel Embiid. But if anyone doubted Sam Hinkie, just look at the team this year and remember that Brian Colangelo has been the general manager since Hinkie left. The fact that Colangelo hasn't been able to destroy this team, I think is really indicative of what a great job Sam Hinkie did with the incredibly difficult situation that was handed to him when he became the general manager of this team. I mean, there were some mistakes, clearly. Yes. And I think that not bringing in a point guard that one year that they won 10 games and started 1-30 in 30 was probably the worst decision just because of how blatant it was. If Hinky had been a little more subtle about his tanking, he might still have a job and the Sixers would be probably in an even better position just because of how great a job Hinky did with pretty much every trade he made. But anyway, uh, the main follow through of what Hinky did for this Sixers team is that they now have probably the best young duo in the NBA in Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. It's really been, well, I have a question for you after I'm done finishing my diatribe here on Simmons and Embiid, because this is my wheelhouse and I am overly excited that we have probably the best young duo in the NBA. The incredible thing is that they have only, they only just started playing together this season and they already have great, they already have great chemistry. And keep in mind, Markel Fultz is still on the men with this really just bizarre and weird shoulder injury saga that may or may not have uh, altered his shooting form. Um, but just strictly talking about Simmons and Embiid, Embiid in his age 23 season is averaging 23.5 points, 11.2 rebounds, two blocks a game, three assists, and I believe it was one and a half steals. I looked at Hakeem Olajuwon's uh, age 23 season, um, which, by the way, Hakeem is Embiid's idol. He averaged 23.5 points per game, 11.5 rebounds per game, two assists per game, two steals, and three and a half block shots. And uh, Hakeem was obviously a better defender at that point, but Embiid is still arguably a top three defender in basketball. Like the, the fact that the Sixers were able to come out of this granted, he stays healthy, of course, with the potential hall of fame talent, like Embiid and a generational talent in Ben Simmons, the process was already a success, but then you throw in guys like Robert Covington, et cetera, et cetera. A little side note. I'm still kind of worried about Brian Colangelo. Just because he's played it safe and a Sixers podcast I listen to frequently is in a home for process trusters, the rights to Ricky Sanchez. Their host, Spike Estian, brought up a good point. 
Brian Colangelo has done a fine job, but I think he's a checkers type of GM, not a GM that plays chess. And so I am kind of worried about where the team is going to head into the future. But those mis- those potential fears are quelled by the fact and can be covered up. Any mistakes a GM makes can be covered up by the fact that we have the best young duo in the NBA in recent men- memory. Shaq actually, who hates every single big man ever, compared Embiid to Simmons, uh, Embiid and Simmons to Penny and himself, Penny and Shaq, which you're already on a great start. But Ben Simmons is putting up numbers that rival rookie Magic Johnson and Oscar Robertson. And it's not one of those arbitrary stat cutoffs where like Boris Diaw had a, did it one random season or whatever. These are legit like stat cutoffs that only Magic and Oscar have done. So just based on that alone, aside from the Robert Covington success and getting a good contract and TJ McConnell and the cap space that we're going to have over in 2018 and maybe 2019, if we punt this year in free agency, the fact that we have Simmons and Embiid and I'm, yes, I'm saying we, cause I feel like I'm part of the team and I was invested in this process <laughs> for the last four years. Um, the fact that we have those two, you can already just label it a, a success and, I'm just glad that those two are on the Sixers. Oh, and by the way, um, now that my diatribe is finished, I have a question for you. Who is the best center in basketball? Because I know Embiid has played 51 games through his first two years, but I, I still, I just have to think that Embiid is the best center in basketball. I know DeMarcus Cousins is all otherworldly offensive talent, but I just think MB's defensive impact is so far and above uh, Boogie Cousins that Embiid's um, offensive impact, while maybe is just a shade a, a shade under Boogie, it, the defensive side of it by far and away puts him for me in, as the best center right now in basketball. Or am I just being a homer? Honestly, it's hard for me to argue against it. And the only thing that will come up with Embiid until he's had a couple of fully healthy years is just, can he stay healthy? But DeMarcus is nowhere near as good on the defensive end as Joel Embiid is. And ultimately, the most important part of a sender's job is protecting the rim on defense. And Embiid does a better job of that than almost anybody. All right, the last storyline of mine that I wanted to go over, because one of my three we talked about at length when we talked about Stan Van Gundy and the Pistons, but of the superstar trades that were made this offseason, I thought the Clippers got the best return with the package that they got for Chris Paul. I thought that the Bulls made a laughably terrible trade, and I thought the Pacers somehow managed to make an even worse trade. And then I thought that the Kyrie Irving trade was pretty close to even given both Isaiah Thomas's injury situation and his contract expiring at the end of this year. But so far, Indiana looks pretty good coming out of that Paul George trade, especially since the Thunder's disaster of a season so far might lead to George leaving in free agency. The Jimmy Butler trade, still a win for the Timberwolves pretty clearly, but Lowry Markkinen's been a lot better than I expected, and we still haven't seen Zach Levine as primary option Zach Levine rather than tertiary option Zach Levine like he was in Minnesota. And 
the Clippers have completely fallen apart after trading Chris Paul. And granted, that's almost entirely due to injuries, but I thought the Chris Paul trade was by far and away the fairest of those superstar trades, and yet it's looked pretty bad so far. And the Paul George trade, which I thought was a fireable offense, has actually looked pretty solid for Indiana. Victor Oladipo's numbers so far, 23.6 points per game, 5.3 rebounds per game, 3.9 assists, and he's shooting 44% from three and has an effective field goal percentage of 55.5. He has been spectacular. And I was an Oladipo fan going into the draft, but I did not, I after four years, and some of that uh, was hampered because he was playing next to Westbrook last year, who we already discussed. But Oladipo has been incredible and has actually made the Pacers trade defendable. And one last thing before we move on, if I was the Thunder, I would trade Paul George. Like if their record doesn't improve by mid-January, I would be surfing calls and trying to get what I can because it's looking bad. And I might be overreacting, but I don't know where how this is going to resolve itself if the players keep playing like they're playing and the fit doesn't continue to not fit um if that makes sense let's wrap up by talking about the last storyline that you had and it fits pretty well with our previous discussion about joel Embiid. but after a couple of years where it seemed like the NBA was moving away from big men and just becoming a league full of five, six, eight guys who could switch everything and shoot threes, we're now sort of seeing a return of the center, at least so far this season. Yeah, so I'm going and I'm doing a deep dive article for hashtag basketball on uh, the return of the center. Um, but yeah, like you said, the trend of switching and playing small ball, that's going to be trumped really soon once these big man, these centers start coming into their own. You got Joel Embiid, um, DeMarcus Cousins, Andre Drummond is finally coming into his own. Kristaps Porzingis, I'm throwing him in there because I think his future is a five and the Knicks need to recognize that as soon as possible. Carl Anthony Towns, Miles Turner, the list is going on and on. And not only that, there's still a bunch of solid centers in the NBA. Steven Adams, Rudy Gobert, perennial defensive player of the year candidate. And then coming up in this draft, possibly Mo Bamba, although I've been underwhelmed by him whenever I've watched him. DeAndre Ayton, who I would still take, despite Marvin Bagley's brilliance so far, I would still take him with the first pick in the draft. He's the number one player on my board. The center position is back it's going to come alive or possibly we might see a renaissance in the 2020s once all these big men hit their prime like we did in the 90s and these are all guys who can shoot dribble pass some other centers have different varieties defend pass except just a bunch of centers with different skills that could change the calculus of small ball where you can have the benefit of the benefit of having the skills of small ball while still remaining big and the center position is it's coming back it was dead for a bit um they were mostly used as props like screen setters rim rollers etc but now we're getting the skilled versatile center back in a more skilled perimeter oriented way but also back to the basket just everything they're more complete now all right anything else before we wrap up uh, follow me on Twitter on Sports Talk Xmas and look at my work on hashtag basketball.com. All right. Well, that was Jordan Christmas, JC. You can find him on Twitter, as he mentioned before, and also on the hashtag basketball website. 
The other Jordan today, Jordan Schultz, you can find him on Twitter at DinoNBA, and you can also find his work on the hashtag basketball website. You can follow me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N, and can find my work on the hashtag basketball website as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. really helps us spread the word. If you have any feedback, good, bad, something in between, feel free to reach out to me either on Twitter or via email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.